are now tuned in to this week's episode of our podcast. Today, we are going to interview some of the greatest and most influential minds in our field. By sharing our collective expertise, we will show you how to harness, control, and use your own skill set to achieve ultimate success and live the life you want. And now, please welcome your host. Picture this, a group of people standing at a podium, smiling, clapping in anticipation, all dressed up, giggling to each other. And then the person in front pushes a button. The opening bell of the New York Stock Exchange. This moment means that anyone can now buy a part of their company for the first time. Winning when they win, losing when they lose, and this moment gives the company access to a bunch of cash that they can use to grow. But it also means they've entered into a world of 10Ks, 10Qs, quarterly investor meetings, having an eagle eye on their ticker symbol, tracking the day-to-day rise and fall of their stock price. All processes that contribute to thinking in the short term and can put profit ahead of doing good. But today, I want to introduce you to a new kind of stock exchange, one that's trying to end this focus on short-term thinking, and not by shifting some processes, but by building a whole new system. Welcome to TED Business. I'm Madhupa Akinola. And today, we're going to hear from a woman named Michelle Green. This summer, she spoke at a virtual TED conference. At the time, she was the president of the Long-Term Stock Exchange, or LTSE. It's a stock exchange just like the New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ, but it's structured to encourage thinking for the long term. So let's hear Michelle lay out the basics of the LTSE after a quick break. If you work with a team, you know how difficult it can be to stay organized. Our sponsor, Monday.com, believes that working effectively with your team can actually be fun. Monday.com's new WorkOS platform gives your team the tools they need and want so they can work well together, making it easy to plan work, update statuses, and give feedback all in one place. Teams are more productive when they work together. To experience WorkOS and sign up for your free two-week trial, visit Monday.com. That's Monday.com. Hi, this is Adam Grant of Taken for Granted. This year, we worked with our sponsor, Jobs Ohio, to crowdsource some thought-provoking questions we're all dealing with as the landscape of work continues to change. Stay tuned to listen to my responses to Sheila and Lois, whose situations might not be so unique. What we're looking to do is to really change the way that companies show up in the world. And in order to make that change, we have to think about the system in which companies operate. So when the focus is on quarterly reporting, that puts a lot of pressure on companies to behave in short-term ways and to make short-term decisions. And when that happens, we all lose. And so we wanna change that kind of behavior by changing the whole system. And we wanna create a different kind of financial market that allows for a different kind of capitalism. 
Now, the reason that a stock exchange is the way to do that is really for two reasons. The first is that if you want to change the system, you have to change the rules. And that's what stock exchanges do. They make rules. They make listing standards that companies that list on the exchange have to follow. And our rules are all geared toward that long-term focus. What we're trying to do is create a place where companies can maintain their focus on their long-term mission and vision, and at the same time, be accountable for their impact on the broader world. So to make these rules, we created um, five core principles. And those core principles are really about how you can put them together to come up with a long-term system. And the core principles also have some specific requirements with them. And these requirements are very different than those of any existing exchange. So for example, companies that list with us commit to adopting publicly a policy on diversity and inclusion. And that's incredibly important in today's world, of course. Um, companies that list with us commit to investing for the long term in their employees also very important and in the current system treated as overhead rather than investment. And companies that list with us commit to taking in a certain approach to the environment. So um, there's a bunch of other standards as well, but the broader point is that these standards taken together create a different kind of commitment than companies can make now because it's a different set of rules than any stock exchange has. And that commitment is the second reason that a stock exchange is important. Um, we're in a moment where there's a real move to change capitalism. There's moves towards stakeholder capitalism, and there's a desire to really think about things differently. And it's become really difficult for a company that really means it and really intends to operate differently to distinguish itself. How can that company show that they're not just signing on to something because it's kind of the interesting thing of the day, but in fact, they intend to operate differently? And listing on a stock exchange is a legally binding commitment. It's a way to say publicly, we are not only operating this way today, but we intend to continue to operate this way. And that sends a really powerful signal. It's a powerful signal to a company's investors, to their customers, to their employees. And it's a powerful signal that those groups can then use to make decisions about what companies they want to invest in, what companies they want to buy products from, and where they want to work, because increasingly that really matters matters to people. I think we have an opportunity for a reset. We have a chance to really change our system. And if we can create a long-term focus system where companies are freed up to really make long-term choices, what those companies will end up doing is creating more long-term value. And that's good for companies, but they'll also do it in a way that's better for the rest of us. And this is the type of new system that we need. We need it because it's the right thing to do, but we also need it because it's the only way that we can create a system of capitalism that is more sustainable, more equitable, and something that will work for everybody. I feel optimistic. I feel optimistic that in this current moment, we can use this reset to change capitalism. And I think this is one area that we really can build back better. Today, we're partnering with Jobs Ohio to think through questions that a lot of us are facing. Consider this my version of Office Hours. Hi, Adam. Excited to participate. My name is Sheila Akins. I'm with Jobs Ohio as the managing director. We're beginning to discuss bringing employees back to the office. 
How can we do this thoughtfully? Well, thank you, Sheila. The first step that's missing in a lot of organizations is just to ask, what are we trying to accomplish here? I think once you identify the goals that you have, you can start to prioritize them together. And then I think the second step that I would take is I would consider running an innovation tournament. Instead of assuming then that we have all the answers, we might as well crowdsource some initial ideas and say, look, you know what? We're going to run a contest. Anybody in the organization can submit ideas for how we might think about navigating the transition back to work. Does that idea of giving people one day a week to work from anywhere, does that give us a good balance of productivity and collaboration and culture? Are we in a situation where we want people to have the same days working remotely, or do we want to try to stagger them out? Those are open questions, and the only way to learn is to run experiments. Hi, Adam. My name is Lois Brown, and I'm from Cleveland, Ohio. I recently re-entered the workforce, and I'm wondering if you could give me some advice on how to build confidence in this new career. Lois, congratulations on your new role. I do know some people who, when taking on a completely different career path, are not intimidated. Those people are called narcissists. The rest of us, when we walk into a new job or an unfamiliar career path, we're naturally intimidated. You're not alone. And I think that's the first thing to remember. I would also recognize that being an outsider to some extent gives you some insight. We know that when people have worked for an organization for a long time, they often get trapped in cognitive entrenchment, where they start to take for granted assumptions that need to be questioned. And I would say in your first few weeks and even first few months, it's a great opportunity to observe the culture. You may have thoughts that are helpful to the people around you. And once you make a suggestion that people find useful, that can become a source of confidence and you start to feel a little bit less intimidated. Everyone you just heard from is affiliated with Jobs Ohio in some capacity, and they're working through the same challenges many of you might be facing. Jobs Ohio is a nonprofit corporation designed to drive job creation by focusing on key growth industries and projects to improve communities statewide. See what Ohio can offer you and your business at ohioisforleaders.com. Okay, so that was the lay of the land from Michelle. Now here's my question. How do you do that? How do you build a system that incentivizes for long-term goals? Goals that are lofty, goals that often require a lot of money and a lot of patience. In a Q&A, Michelle said their whole approach was built around one idea, principles. Yeah, so we took a principles-based approach generally because what we found was that it was really important to not try and do a one-size-fits-all. You know, long-term in a retail company might be very different than long-term in an energy company, for example, right? These principles act kind of like a moral compass, a set of values every company has to consider in order to list on the exchange. So let's say you're an oil company and you list on the LTSE. They won't dictate that you need to get to zero emissions in a particular time frame. That might never work for your company. But they will tell you to develop your own long-term policy around environmental impact. So, for example, if someone came along and said, you know, our environmental policy is to burn fossil fuels forever because we think climate change is false. Well, that's not actually a long-term environmental policy. So you may have a policy, but it doesn't actually comply with a long-term principle. So environmental impact fits under the first principle, which is all about stakeholders. 
So if you list on the LTSC, you have to develop a policy for how you'll invest in employees, support diversity and inclusion, and once you figure out those policies, you publish them. So your investors understand what your long-term vision is and can help you reach those goals. Got it? So the first principle, stakeholders. And now what's the second principle? Long-term decision-making. So you have to figure out what does success look like for your company in the long-term? How does your company even define long-term? That's an important part of kind of rewriting the narrative and getting to the point where we can be talking about success in a more meaningful way than quarterly financial results. So all of this sounds pretty good. But aren't there other ways to incentivize more long-term thinking? I chatted with Corey Hagem, who's Ted's business curator, about what another exchange is doing right now. I want to contrast it with the announcement that NASDAQ made recently, where they've proposed a rule that their listed companies must have at least one woman on the board and a second member of the board who represents some other minority population. And I'm interested in what you think about that kind of line in the sand versus a principles-based approach. And I will add that of the 3,000 listed companies on the NASDAQ, they've estimated that it's something like three-quarters of those companies wouldn't meet that target. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so... <laughs> so other than the fact that that's a shocking sort of fact and statistic, do you think it's better if, you know, an exchange just says, hey, here's what you need to do. You know, we want this number. Or do you think it should be up to the companies themselves to sort of set those goals for themselves? Well, I wish life was easy enough to be like, it should be either or, but don't we know that the answer is it depends. Mm -hmm. And I think for decades, we've been trying to get companies to be more environmentally friendly, to, you know, include people of color and women, and the needle hasn't moved as quickly as it can or should. And as a result, we need to do harsh, intense things that motivate that behavior. Mm-hmm. So I do think that rules, like a quota, can be helpful, especially in a context where you know that these goals have not been met. Um, but I also do think that there are other organizations and other systems where allowing people to set those rules for themselves, especially if they have shown a commitment to some of the key areas, that, that that's also helpful too. So I think context is everything. So let me explain what I mean here by context. Imagine you have two different schools. One has a really rigorous application process. You have to write a bunch of essays, you need a certain GPA, and all the students are applying because they want to be in an environment full of high achievers. That's the LTSE. So if students in this environment have the freedom to figure out what works for them, they can reach the high bar they've already set for themselves. Of course, with a little structure and accountability, though. The NASDAQ is more like a public school. You have all kinds of kids. Some want to study really hard. Some don't want to be there at all. Some would thrive with a little more support. Others would find extra support stifling. And in a place like this, requiring that everyone hit a minimum target might not help the high achievers. But it could bring up the floor for everyone, lifting the average in a meaningful way and reaching a lot more people than the selective LTSE. So what does this mean? 
In a selective environment, you can get away with having principles, but in a different kind of environment, you likely need rules. But is it worth the effort to build a whole new exchange, or is it better to throw our energy into improving the exchanges we already have? Like, should we just push the NASDAQ to do more of this kind of thing? Should we just lobby the NASDAQ to make more and more of these kinds of rules changes because they have the market, they have the existing companies? Or do you think to really, to really get things moving, we need a whole new system? Like, when do we just change the rules and when do we change the whole system? You change the rules in the way NASDAQ has done when, after decades, and the push towards racial and gender inequity has been met with resistance and change hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. That's when you change the rules. Right. Because the old rules aren't working. They gave people freedom before. It's not working because there are underlying things that prevents it from working. So we need both. Then we need to also say, okay, well, what does it look like? to start from scratch? What would we want from scratch to then inv- incentivize people to engage in the behaviors we want them to? And the LTSC is starting from scratch. And so it's saying, hey, let's try out pe- giving people freedom and the opportunity to choose for themselves. And let's see how that works. History would say it might not work. But they're saying we are going to um, select and only invite in the people that are able to do this. So when you can cherry pick then you can rely on people doing what's right and what's aligned. When you can't necessarily cherry pick and choose who's on your exchange in some ways, then you have to institute freaking quotas. Right. One thing I also know is that we are followers, and if you see other people doing something and it's working or they're getting rewarded, then um, other people will follow on. And so we need to think about that in terms of motivation too. Right. It's a really interesting dynamic because if we get the LTSE up and running and if it picks up and gets really popular, then the NASDAQ will probably also be more motivated to move in that direction. And maybe there's a quota around board diversity, but then maybe something else happens with executive compensation or carbon targets, um, things like that. So I feel like you're right. Whenever we want to change something huge, something like capitalism, we're going to need both the innovation and like the brand new playing field and the brand new system. And then we're also going to need people in the existing systems to push forward in whatever way they can. So look, I'm all for anything that helps organizations be more ethical. But will the LTSE disrupt at a level we need it to disrupt? That I'm not so sure about, but I really hope so. And by the way, the LTSC was approved to launch in 2019, which means they're now in conversations with companies preparing to list. And here's what I'm going to be looking for. Will large old school firms decide to list? Because A, I think they're in the need of the most change. And B, if they move, whole industries will move with them. And another question on my mind, will the LTSE really make a difference since companies can dual list? If companies are trading their stock on both the LTSE and other exchanges, are they really free from short-term pressures? We're gonna have to wait and see. That's it for today. Our producer is Kim Naderfane Peterza. Dan DeZula is our mixer. And special thanks to Michelle Quint, Bam Bam Chang, Anna Phelan, and Colin Helms. 
And as always, you can email us at businessatted.com to say hello, let us know what you're thinking, and tell us anything you'd like to hear on future episodes. I'm Madhuba Akinola. Welcome to the Women's Football Show. Now, it was International Women's Day this week. And as always on the programme, we have a whole host of incredible women to celebrate, including Everton's Gabby George, who's just back from an ACL injury. Also, Ankara James, the Wales and Reading midfielder, will be discussing exciting developments both on and off the pitch. We'll also be discussing Team GB updates and the Champions League results as well. Plus, uh, we have uh, Tony Burnett joining us. He's the new CEO of Kick It Out, and he'll be discussing discrimination in football. Uh, but first, uh, talking of incredible women, former England star Sue Smith is alongside <laughs> me. How are you, Sue? I'm very well, Jess. Thank you very much. And um, it looks like I've been uh, writing your script again, doesn't it? Incredible women. I like that. <laughs> I'll pay you later. <laughs> yeah, I expect to check in the post. <laughs> <laughs> All oh, right. Now, as we are celebrating International Women's Day, uh, how about this for a celebration, Sue? Uh, last week, Northern Ireland found out who they'll be playing in the Euro 2022 playoff. Um, so let's show you Simone McGill's reaction. Uh, she's uh, surrounded by her Everton teammates. Take a look. Come on. <laughs> I think she might have been happy about that. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, let's also though, get some reaction from her fellow Northern Irish teammates, uh, Julie Nelson, Sarah McFadden and the captain, uh, Marissa Callahan, And they were somewhat calmer about the news. Do you know, I'm going to be totally honest, when, when Ukraine came out, um, <laughs> I have to say the jump up and down with, with delight because... Having Ukraine in, in the last number of years, we kind of we we have matches that we can look back on and um, see. You know, we can study and we can make sure that we're prepared for this. Um, you know, it's, it's over us. Um, Ukraine is is the team, and yeah, it's a it's a good draw for us. And yeah, brilliant. Can't really hide from the fact we've played them twice in the last maybe like two or three years, and it's a team that at least we know that we can play with and we can compete with. Um, we do have some bad experiences against the Swiss and other some of the other big nations, so I think that was one of our, our thinking. Yeah, they would have been one of the ones that you know we were happy happy to get. You know, we know whoever we get are are still going to be the favourites for the tie, but based on obviously playing them in Spain last March, that we would be happy to get Ukraine um, out, out of the teams that potentially we knew at that stage may end up uh, getting in the playoffs. So I think we're all um, you know happy enough with Ukraine and. And as Marissa said, you know, it's over to us now. No matter who we play, I feel like we're always going to be the best prepared for them um, as individuals. But as well, like we always say, it, like we're always prepared on the sideline if things aren't going right, that Kenny and Dean will always sort things out for us. So no matter who we play, we win with like a, like a little confidence that because they're so like tactically 
good that they're able to tell us straight away how to beat any team we play against now. So I think going into any game, I think we're ready for whoever it is. And especially when it's only two games, like two cup finals that we have to play the Ukrainians, I just feel like we'll all be confident going into it and know that we'll put up a, a good fight no matter what happens. Well, Sue, the last time Northern Ireland played the Ukraine, they were on the end of a pretty big defeat. But the players there listening to them sound quietly confident, don't they? They really do. And, and it certainly was a, a favourable draw for, for Northern Ireland. You could see by the, the reaction of the players. And, and I think they'll certainly believe that they can progress. Of, of course, it's going to be tough. Like you said, they've they've been beaten twice before quite recently. But I think when you look at the progression of Northern Ireland, I think they're playing so much better now. I think the fact that he did rotate the side slightly and, and maybe try out a few of the, the youngsters. So they'll certainly be, be confident. And, you know, I think they'll look back on those games. They'll learn from them, they'll reflect, and they'll certainly take it into the, the two games that they've got to play. Yeah, looking forward to that matchup. Uh, now, as I did say, we are, of course, celebrating women uh, because it was International Women's Day uh, this week. And the theme for this year was Choose to Challenge, which is something I think is very relevant across the women's game at the moment. So to talk about this, this a bit further with us is the new CEO of Kick It Out, Tony Burnett, who joins us now. A very big welcome to you, Tony. Great to have you on the show. Uh, now, I know that you've been in the Thank job you. for about two months now two or three months. Have you got your feet under the table yet? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a small organisation, a small charity. So it was literally um, thrown into the deep end from day one, uh, which which is, I, I absolutely love it, actually. So it's, it feels like I've been around for quite a while now. So I've got no excuses for not knowing things. <laughs> Good to know. Um, now, you know, let, let's get to it, Tony, because we, we've seen um, a lot of footballers, being racially abused online in recent months. Um, Anthony Martial, Lauren James, uh, Jan Dander, just, just a few examples. There's been so many. Uh, there seems to have been a recent increase. Would you agree with that? And, and how much of that increase is due to lockdown? Ooh, uh, I think it's a, there, there, I think there are a number of questions here. I, I agree there has been an increase um, uh, recently. We had, we had even more cases uh, uh, yesterday, and I've got some, some more talking to do on air a bit later on about the issues. Uh, you're probably aware, actually, we, we've convened uh, and we work with the football family to get a group of, of stakeholders together, right, ranging from the FA to the PFA to all the key stakeholders, the Premier League, to discuss our response to these issues. And we've got we've got an online uh, hate working group that, that, that meets regularly now to uh, to essentially kind of push for action in a number of areas. Um, so we're confident we're doing everything we possibly can to try and move forward and, and get this 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 issue uh, eradicated really as much as possible from football. I think there's a broader issue really, which we're not going to get time to probably get into. But you know, this this is also about societal and, and societal change. I think we can blame COVID to a degree, um, but for the past two or three years, you know, there's the the, the climate around certainly issues of race within the UK has been quite toxic, um, and I think we've also got to take responsibility on a national level from a government perspective. For, for, for the, the nature of the discussion around race. And, and we've got to kind of take responsibility for what that drives. Um, so we very much advocate that actually we should be talking about inclusion. Everyone's got a place in football. Everyone deserves to belong. And that's, that's the message we should be giving. Um, and that's got to come from the top right through the football authorities. And to a large degree, football is a reflection of broader society. I'm not sure we've got the dialogue right within broader society around race at the minute. Is there a worry, Tony, that, that this will translate into more issues within the football grounds when, when fans are allowed back in, do you think? 
There is a concern about Otsu, yes, but it's it's not it's not just about race. You know, one of the things I kind of I keep wanting to stress actually is that it's it's not a race issue. This is we've seen uh, horrific misogynistic comments online. We've seen comments against uh, gay people and, and 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 other all protected characteristics. This is this is about uh, human behaviour and and what people think is okay, particularly around football. And I've talked about this a little bit in the past, and we've got to redefine that because the things that people think it's okay to 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 say in and around the sphere of football are not okay in every other walk of life, uh, and we've got to challenge that. So yeah, I'm, I'm concerned when when the game gets back up and running um, because it feels like there's some new norms been established now that we thought we got rid of kind of 20 years ago, and it's we've got to work hard to reestablish those norms about what's acceptable and what's not. And one of the just to build on that, you know, one of the things I think we've got to challenge, particularly around culture, is. I keep banging on about it, it's toxic masculinity. Um, there's a group of, of men in particular that think it's okay to behave in certain ways around football. And as a society, I wouldn't say it's not. What is it about football, Tony, that allows these toxic males, as, as you refer to them, that allows them to feel safe and comfortable enough to behave in that way? Do you know what, Jess? That's a great question. I don't know, um, but I mean, I, I've I've you, I, I've played football for for many years at a semi-pro and kind of amateur level, uh, and and I've been season ticket holder at Bolton Wanderers for for a number of years, and it always bothered me actually when I, when I used to go and watch games, particularly when I started going with my young my young children, um, the the behaviours that were just normal, even in the family stand, and um, and I don't think we've ever gotten away from that, and it's it's behaviours that you don't see in other sports. You know, it's it's not okay to verbally abuse people when you go and watch a football match. Um, and I've seen this from people who would, would, you know, find that abhorrent in other walks of life. So I just think we've got an opportunity. I'm not saying football supporters, I'm not suggesting all football supporters behaving that way. But there are a few people that still think it's OK. And, it, and I think we've got to collectively redefine the boundaries of appropriate behaviour for the whole of the football sphere. Um, and it, that covers all protected characteristics. It's not OK how people, some people think it's all right to behave in football. So how much power does, does Kick It Out have to actually stop this abuse? When these incidents happen, uh, be it online or within stadiums, what practical steps can Kick It Out take? Or is it more uh, more of a campaign group rather than action orientated, do you think? A bit of both. I think traditionally our history has been around campaigning, um, but with, with our kind of new strategy and direction, we're, we're trying to focus beyond campaigning. So part of it's campaigning, absolutely, raising awareness on the issues that are important. We're also working with the broader football authorities to get a, a better and more efficient process for reporting of incidents from grassroots right through to I know a lot of what we see is, is obviously around Premier League and around kind of high profile uh, players. But I'm conscious as well that there are tens of thousands of people playing grassroots football uh, on, a, on a, a weekly basis that also need the same protection. So we're working really hard with our football partners to put processes in place where we can we can support football to report efficiently and have some transparency around the reporting. Uh, and the third bit really is, is is around education. You know, we've got and this that sounds and I don't want that to sound patronising, but and you see this and you guys have seen this as well when you go watching grassroots games. It's the same type of activity, same type of behaviours. You know. There are a group of people, again, that think it's OK, for example, to shout and scream and bully kids at grassroots football. So I think we've got I just think we've got a job to do around the whole process of education uh, and redefining behavioural boundaries for, for people involved in football. Um, and an honest adult discussion about, about, about what that looks like, whether that's online or, or in a ground or actually in a park on a, a Saturday afternoon or Sunday morning. Tony, it is encouraging how you know fans and, and social media users they they often just shut down the trolls, don't they? And 
you know, what that's, I suppose, one way that, that people feel that, that they can maybe have a, an impact. But how else do you think that, that viewers or, or anyone else who, who wants to get involved, how can they support the Kick It Out campaign? Well, one of our programmes is called Take a Stand. Uh, we're really keen that people kind of adopt that. And I'm conscious, again, it's, it's, it's challenging. Online is, is probably easier because you're not necessarily have got that physical presence. In a ground, it's probably a little bit more difficult if a big six foot two burly guy is kind of shouting abuse and, and you've got to challenge him or kind of say, excuse me a minute, can you just stop that? That is, is a different <laughs> ball game. But <laughs> well, the only way this stuff stops, actually, is people taking a stand. And, and you guys, you, you in particular, so Jess, I, guess I don't know your background, but, you know, um, my background when I kind of played pithy grassroots football and I was subject to abuse, it was my uh, white teammates that stopped it. I never really had to get involved in confrontation because I had teammates that, you know, on the few occasions it happened, they were right there before I got anywhere near it, telling the opposition exactly what they thought of the comments. Or in a couple of instances, the, the supporters exactly what they thought of the comments. And that's what Take a Stand's all about. On whatever way people feel comfortable to do it, whether that's online, um, and as you're absolutely right, Sue, kind of just taking the trolls to task, or whether that's physically in a park on a Saturday or a, a Sunday, Sunday morning, or it's in the ground whatever you feel comfortable with, but it is about taking a stand. It's not about doing nothing, then going home and kind of moaning to our friends and family that something happened. We've all got a responsibility to, to redefine the behaviours that we, we know are acceptable. And I've seen family environments as well, you know. I've been in, I've been in certain family conversations where I've done a dinner table and, and people are referring to players they like from certain clubs or teams and in, in ways that you just wouldn't talk about anybody doing a job in any other walk of life. And I just, and I take them to task now and I just say, hang on a second, that's a human being you're talking about. Just because you support that club does not give you the right to, you know, verbally abuse them. Um, so, yeah, I just think we've all got a responsibility to do that. Brilliant. Now, you did mention, Tony, that, that this isn't necessarily just a race issue. There are all forms of a, a discrimination going on um, in terms of the abuse that, that people are suffering. Um, and you've mentioned gender, but you've also mentioned sexuality. And I think you've said in the past that you feel as though in terms of the women's game, it's almost ahead of the men's game in terms of the LGBT plus inclusion. Um, do you still feel as though the men's game could perhaps learn a few things from the women's game in that respect? I do completely, actually. Uh, one of the things I love about the women's game is actually that, that it, it doesn't even come up really as a topic of discussion because people are able to be themselves. You know, belonging and being who you are is just part of the norm for the for the. It appears to me, anyway, as, as part as as part of the women's game. I think the men's game's got a long way to go, and I think the difficulty with the men's game is because it's so established. I think some of the behaviours that that have been traditionally accepted as part of the men's game are ingrained. So we've got to unpick that, but but we can learn from the women's game in terms of the the, the culture of belonging that of belonging that that has been created. That it's okay to be whoever you are within the women's game, and that's absolutely part of the fundamental. Um, basis for the women for women's football I think that's brilliant so I think we should look at women's football and say what, what is it culturally that, that the women's game's got right that we can use to, to develop the men's game to the same level of, of maturity that the women's game's at now. Tony been uh, really good to talk to you thank you for uh, outlining Kick It Out's uh, strategy and also you know I hope that we can be a part of trying to make football more inclusive for everyone thank you so much for joining us on the Women's Football Show. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Now, there's been lots of positive news uh, in terms of women's sport this week. A new women's elite sports partnership has been uh, created. West Ham are a part of it. And Hannah Wilkes has been speaking to their managing director, uh, Jack Sullivan, about how it could take women's sport to the next level. Can you just 
tell us what the Women's Elite Sport Partnership is? Um, so it's basically a collective of teams and um, and clubs and, and universities as well from London um, and Essex basically all coming together and trying to work together on how we can take the women's game to, to, to the next level across all different areas of sports, whether that's commercially, whether that's um, bringing it to new fans, whether that's our, our community engagement. Every single strand, we're going to be working together on on how we can almost take things that other teams are doing really well. So we're not all making the same mistakes. We're, we're looking and saying that was really successful for us. And hopefully London Pulse or London Lions will be able to replicate that and, and also see it, see a big, a big uh, growth in, in what, whatever they're, they're trying to do. So how has the partnership itself come about? Who sort of instigated this? So we were speaking to um, London Pulse and, we then started having conversations and we started to talk about if we could make it bigger and get more opportunity. We have a very good relationship with University of East London, so we invited them and it sort of just snowballed from there, really. Why is it that elite women's sports teams need these sort of partnerships and will benefit from this sort of working together in the way that you know, men's sport maybe doesn't need it? I think all, all sport needs, needs collaboration. You, you look at... Uh, there's always things to learn, whether it's on the pitch or off the pitch. There's going to be strength and conditioning coaches with different ideas, or there's going to be um, some other sports that maybe advertise in different ways or get fans in different ways. And it, there's there's always room to learn and and expand your your mindset. On the women's side, a lot of the sports they're not on ground, they're not on like starting from zero, but there's there's a lot we can still do, and we can almost make the landscape whatever we want it to be. And I think. That's really unique for, for women's sport at the moment. We've got a huge supporter base uh, it, that, that love women's sport. And I think it was a no-brainer for us really to, to put all these pieces of the jigsaw together to, to, to make the jigsaw and to hopefully be able to push on now and, and to take things hopefully to, to the next level. Why was it important to ensure that this was a cross-sport initiative rather than just sticking with, say, just football teams? Yeah, I think we didn't want to um, exclude any sports or, or anyone like that. We we know a lot of a lot of research has been done where um, girls at a young age play a, a lot a lot of sports, and we didn't want to close um, a certain section of girls down. We wanted to offer something for for all girls, and and we we thought this would be the best way to speak to all these different teams, see what they're doing, see how we could work together, and and basically it, get more girls participating in, in sport in and around East London and Essex. So hopefully in 10 years' time, they're, they're, they're playing for, for each one of the teams. And it's not impossible that uh, an under 10 in, in our academy won't be playing for London Pulse or someone at London Pulse won't be playing for, for West Ham women's. You know, we don't want to close the door. We want to open as many doors and as many opportunities for these young girls as possible. We don't want to be closing them down and saying, no, you have to play football, you have to play cricket or you have to play netball at a certain age. Really interesting to get the thoughts there of West Ham Women's Managing Director Jack Sullivan. Let's just take a look at who else joins them in that partnership that he mentioned. It's quite a few teams there, Sunrisers, London Pulse, Essex Rebels and London Lions. And Sue, um, I wonder, one part of that I found interesting was that, you know, women's sports operates in a different market to the men's sport and so it doesn't necessarily have to follow a traditional method do you think 
that could be beneficial to West Ham women because there are in cases in football where uh, the women's teams are strongly affiliated to the men's. Yeah, I can't see why not. And, and the, there may be some clubs that, that may sort of see a conflict in, in terms of, of commercial activity. However, in terms of like the fan engagement and improving the experience of, of female athletes through sharing of good practice, um, you know, I think learning from one another would be a huge benefit. So I think it's a I think it's a great idea. OK, uh, right. Plenty still more to come on the women's football show. We'll be talking Olympics. We'll be hearing from Everton's Gabby George after returning from injury. And also we'll be joined by Reading and Wales star and Harrod James. See you soon. Hello there, welcome back. You're watching the Women's Football Show. Still alongside me is Sue Smith and joining us both now is Wales and uh, Reading midfielder Haz James. Let's just have a little reminder of her incredible career so far. As James, making your debut on the Women's Football Show. Great to have you on. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, firstly, double congratulations uh, because you've had some exciting news on the pitch in that you're uh, moving to the NWSL in America and joining the North Carolina Courage. But also, you recently got engaged, didn't you, to your partner, Amy? Um, so... Big celebrations there must have been in the Turner James household. <laughs> yeah, there was. It was a bit of um, a weird time, actually, because of lockdown and everything that's going on. We haven't really celebrated properly, but um, it's definitely in the pipeline as soon as lockdown is over to celebrate both the engagement and and me get moving to America. That's brilliant. And there is uh, your partner, Amy. For those that don't know, Amy, uh, Amy Turner plays for Manchester United. But, you know, what I found lovely about that has was that you and Amy just being so open and, and honest and, and loud and proud about being in a relationship. And it seems to be reflective of how inclusive uh, the women's game can be in terms of the LGBTQ community. Do you find that? Yeah, definitely. I think it's moving in the right direction. And I think the only way we're going to force change is by, you know, being proud of, of who we are. And I'm I'm proud to be with Amy and, you know, I'm proud of, of what she's achieving at the minute. And yeah, it's we're fortunate to be in such a such an inclusive environment where we can be ourselves. And, you know, we're um, we're one of the lucky ones as such that that we, we can do that. And yeah, and hopefully, you know, just by putting it out there and and, you know, making everyone aware of it, it might help that just one person. And, and you know, if, if it does that, then, then you know, I'm happy. Uh, what's it like coming up against her on the pitch? <laughs> Sca scary. <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, well, the last game we played, I, I was speaking to my dad before the game and he said, Amy's not going to back out of a challenge with you. If, if you've watched Amy play, she's she's a hundred percent or nothing, and um, yeah, she's coming straight through me if if she needs to. So he said, watch out for for a turn to tackle. Um, but no, do you know what? We're we're so supportive of one another, um, both on the on and off the field, and 
you know, I, I watch nearly every every game she plays in, and you know, I couldn't. I'm probably one of her biggest fans, and it's nice that we've got you know such a professional relationship as well. That you know, when we come up against each other, we don't really talk about it in the lead uh, the lead up to the game. It's you know, we're getting on, we're doing our jobs, and, and you know, we'll speak after it. But um, yeah, we're professional in in what we do on the pitch, and then yeah, so supportive off it. Okay. Good to know. Um, let's talk Reading then, um, because uh, currently mid-table at the moment, and it seems when you look at the uh, WSL table, three teams at the top uh, running away with it in terms of the European European places: Chelsea, Manchester City, and of course Amy's team, uh, Manchester United. So where does that leave Reading then? What are your realistic aims for the rest of this season? Um, I think as a group, it's to get as many points on the board as possible um you know we slipped up on monday night against bristol and you know we've we've done we've babe, maybe been a little bit inconsistent this year we've picked up some really good results against top teams but then unfortunately have not picked up points where where we should be picking up points um and as a group you know we we know that and we've you know we, we analyze every game and we make sure that that we're better in the next one but it's now, you know, it's the final six, seven games left of the season. It's just get as many points on the board as possible and, you know, keep moving forward and improving as a team. Well, yeah, you mentioned Bristol City. I wasn't going to bring it up, Has, but as you mentioned it, um, <laughs> <laughs> they're, no, they're no longer bottom of the table. And my goodness, watching that match for the neutral, it was absolutely incredible. Surely contender uh, for one of the WSL games yeah. of the season. What was it like to, to kind of be a part of such a competitive fixture? And I suppose it shows as well just how strong the league has become in terms of all teams can now compete. It has, and that's what's what's great to see, especially this year. I feel in the WSL, there's been, you know, so many close games, teams taking points against one another. There's not been an out-and-out out team. I'd probably say Chelsea is one of the only ones that have consistently performed uh, week in, week out. Um, and yeah, the game was, it was end to end. Uh, my legs were definitely tired at the end of it after, <laughs> you know, playing on Ashton Gate. It's, it's great to see Bristol playing, um, at Ashton Gate on such a nice, a nice pitch. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great game and, you know, all credit to Bristol and, and Matt for the way they set up against us. They nullif nullified our threats. Um, and, you know, we struggled to, to break them down at times. So, um, as you said, for the neutral, it was a great game, but for us, it was disappointing. Yeah, uh, I mean, Sue, I, it bodes well, doesn't it, for Bristol? Uh, they've got a, a massive game coming up, uh, the Conti Cup final against Chelsea this weekend, and that would have certainly given them a boost. Oh, definitely. It would be a, a huge confidence boost for, for them, the way that they played. And like you say, for the neutral, it was such a good game to watch. It was just both teams going for it. So it was down one end of the field, one team was attacking, then down the other end of the field. But I just think when you're going into such a big game like the Conti Cup against such a top quality side like Chelsea, you want a really good performance. And, and it's a game that they can watch, they can learn from and, and take that into, into the game. But I just wanted to ask Haz, you know, the, there's been... Other teams in the league that, that have faced like weather postponements and, and things like that this season. We heard from Birmingham City last weekend, Carla Ward spoke to us about their situation. And, you know, how much of a difference has it been for, for you guys to play regularly at the, the Majeski for, for lots of different reasons? 
Yeah, it's been great. And that's something that's, you know, so positive about Reading as a club that they're so supportive, the men's side. Um, you know, we train at the men's training grounds. We play at the men's stadium. Um, it's so inclusive and we're, we're together as a team, which unfortunately isn't the case for every team in the league. Um, and like you said, we've we've not had one postponement this year due to weather conditions or um, or COVID or, or anything of that matter. So it's been great. That's, you know, we've been able to to not miss a week or two weeks of, of game time because of, of the pitch um, like other teams have. So it has been important for us. You know, unfortunately, we've we've not seen that consistency on the pitch, but um, we know away from the pitch as a club that Reading do everything they can to make sure that, that we are together as, as a team. Now, Haz, you've got a big move coming up. You're going across the pond uh, and joining the Courage over in the NWSL. And I, I, I wonder what would have kind of attracted you to that club. We've, we've seen in, in recent weeks and months so many different American sports stars and Hollywood stars supporting other women. For example, Naomi Osaka joining in and, and becoming a part owner of the North Carolina Courage. Was that part of your reason? Did you see that and want to be involved in that? Um, I think for me, it was more down to the fact I've always wanted to play in America. Um, I've only ever experienced the WSL since 17 and I'm 27 this summer. So nearly 10 years of playing in the WSL and I wanted to change the scenery, um, you know, and this opportunity came about at Christmas time and it was one that I couldn't turn down. Um, you know, the calibre of players, the way the game is is moving forward over there. Um, the professionalism, you know, everything as a package, it just attracted me to to make the move. And and yeah, you know, the the fact that it was North Carolina as well, um, so successful and professional in everything that they do, and to be surrounded by the caliber of players that that they've got, and as well, you know, that you've got Olympic winners, you've got World Cup winners in that squad. That you know, if I can train with every day and play against every day, then it's only going to improve and develop me as as a player. Yeah, what an exciting move it would be. Best of luck with that. Uh, now, sitting mid-table near uh, Haz's team, Reading, are Everton, and they just uh, welcomed back their defender, Gabby George. She's been speaking to Anton Tolui about her long journey back from an ACL injury. At the time, I was devastated, but I think looking forward and looking back, I don't think it's the worst thing that happened to me. Um I think the recovery has gone well and I've come back better, sharper than what I left. So you can take a positive out of every negative and I've took that. Wow. I mean, that's that's incredible strength to, to take a positive out of what must have been such a challenging situation. Yeah, it was challenging at first. I think when I first found out, I broke down and it's been 12 long months, but I think I've found myself really. Um, it gave me time to reflect on my game, reflect on myself and and come back better really. Was it really difficult? Because there must have been times when you were really frustrated. And yet, obviously, there were huge things going on in the world, which puts everything into perspective. Yeah, it was quite crazy because obviously I did have the knee injury, but I think just staying positive helped me a lot along the way. And it made the rehab on the other side. It flew by, if I'm honest. Um, I'm just over nine, nine and a half months post-surgery now. And when I look back, it, it's flown. But I think because I had the four months at the start that dragged so long, Anything after that, like I said before, was a bonus. You speak to any footballer that's out long term and they're frustrated for obvious reasons, but they, you know, they can still they can go to the training ground, they can see their teammates, they can still be part of the group. 
you didn't at times you didn't have that did you because obviously we were in lockdown so was that another layer of, of difficulty you had to deal with if I'm honest it was probably easier not being in every day like as a footballer missing games is the worst feeling like no matter if it's one week two weeks three weeks 10 months like it is the worst feeling to sit in the stands every week and fit, like be itching to get out there so I think I was doing my rehab at home and I didn't have to sit and watch the girls on the grass which obviously could come across selfish but mentally it was probably a good thing for me at the time in long-term injuries you've just got to have the little wins so I based my rehab on every little thing that was better so lifting PBs, running faster than I have before, jumping higher than I have before. Like every little win keeps you going and you know that you're getting better and you're getting that much closer. Yeah, you talk to you talk to Willie Cook, the, the head coach or any of the players, and they are always so quick to talk about you and sort of they're, they're just full of support and praise for you. And I presume that's meant so much to you. Yeah, it has. Um, I knew to come back from this injury, I had to work hard. Um there was no second thought. You have to work hard. It's a difficult injury to come back from and I wouldn't lie about that, but the club and the support has made it so much more easier for me. Um, I think from day one, they've made it easier for me. So I think as long as I I knew I had to work hard and if I'd done that, I had everything around me that would make me come back. Gabby, how did it feel when you were told by Willie, right, you're going to be in the team you're going to be on the bench this week or you're, you know you saw your name on a team sheet or obviously when you, you played against City recently as well how did it feel when you when you were like right I'm going to make my, my my proper comeback on the pitch yeah I was saying when I started against City I'd, I forgot how you were supposed to feel like I was in the tunnel I had butterflies and then I was thinking I don't know what I need to do anymore and I rang my dad and he was like it's just, it's just a game of football Gabby and I was like I know dad <laughs> um, but yeah it was it was surreal. Um, I didn't really know how I feel. Like my emotions were just spinning around my head, and I just felt. I always say it, but like my first training session back, I felt like drunk. Like there's just so much going on around you, and like you just feel like it's a, an environment you haven't been in before. But then once you get your first touch, it's everything just comes back, and you're just like, yeah, I've done this a million times. Well, good to hear from Gabby George there. It sounds like she's been on such a journey. It has. I suppose you can sympathise because an injury is one of the worst things to happen to a footballer. Yeah, it is. And, you know, everything that Gabby said is right. You know, sometimes you have to be selfish when you have an injury and take yourself away from, from the environment and do what's best for you as, as a person. And, and I know Gabby and I've played with, I played with her for two years at Everton and she's a great competitor, um, a great profession professional. And, you know, she's... She's very determined and that's why she's back on that pitch so soon after her um her surgery. So it's great to see her back and, and hopefully she can she can stay on that pitch and, and keep moving forward. Lovely. Uh, thanks, Has. Lots more to come from Has. So do stay with us, including a new era for Wales and the recent Team GB announcement that Hegarisa will be leading the Olympic team. Stay with us. Hello, welcome back to the Women's Football Show. Has James is still alongside Sue Smith and I, and we're going to be talking the Olympics in just a moment because this week we had it confirmed that Hager Risa will be the new Olympic football head coach. Uh, and a bit earlier this week, I asked Baroness Sue Campbell from the FA why 
Hegarisa was the woman for the job. We two several things really. Firstly, the quality of the coach she is, and uh, it was really important for me to uh, see the February camp and to um, look at how Hegar and Rianne worked with the players, um, and and that was excellent. And for somebody coming in with the amount of time that she had, it was it was really uh, both an excellent. Uh, demonstration of how you come in and, and set a tone and a set of values and a way of working. Um, so the evidence was in front of us, let alone um, Heger's amazing uh, record uh, as a coach. Uh, but that Olympic experience, um, you know, all of the research shows us that people that haven't been to an Olympics before really struggle with their first Olympics, and that includes coaches. It is a unique and very different experience to a World Cup, for example. You know, it's essentially 26 World Cups of different sports happening simultaneously. The village itself is a different environment. Uh, and I think the fact that Heger has been there both as a player and a coach uh, will really help her to prepare the team the very best she can. And Heger, do you feel there's any pressure on you or obligation to include players that aren't English because it is supposed to be a British team? Uh, I think that's the benefit I have coming uh, from outside, uh, that I, I can pick the uh, players that I believe can uh, go into Olympics and uh, do uh, some good things there. Um, it's interesting because obviously you are the England manager and those are the players that you know uh, well. Um, how hard will it be then to assess those other players, like, you know, the, the Scottish and Welsh players? You say you've watched video, but I suppose with COVID and regulations at the moment, it's difficult to actually go and see them. I have a great stuff surround <laughs> all the players that we need to see, have a look at. We have uh, staff uh, see those players. So I'm pretty confident when we pick the team that we this will be the team that we want and know for sure that can be successful. The majority of the squad will be English. And I think the players have seen lots of transition and I felt it was important to talk to them and to get a sense from them whether they wanted yet another transition, another coach. Um, and after the February camp, they were, they were unanimous. Uh, that they felt that the uh, combination of Heger and, and Rianne was a really successful one for them during that camp and that they would prefer to grow that and develop that. So uh, I have spoken to everyone who expressed an interest and um, I've explained my rationale for, for inviting Heger to do this. So, Sue, it seems as though Hegarisa's Olympic credentials uh, is what gave her the edge. I suppose you can't really argue with that, can you? <laughs> no, you really can't. And it massively helps, doesn't it, when you've won it as a player, which she did for Norway in, in 2000. She then won it as a, as a coach and assistant manager for the US in, in 2012. So I just think those experiences are, are huge. And I just know if I was a player, I'd be wanting to know exactly how she did it and what I needed to do to, to succeed. I would literally be hanging off every single word that she said, because I, I know this group of players are desperate to win something and, and you just think by adding even just a, a small percentage maybe that belief could make all the difference in in the Olympics. 
So has, uh, what do you think? Hegarisa is the person taking charge. Have you been in touch with anyone at the English FA about getting a place, getting yourself on the long list? Um, I think for me, I would be lying if I said I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to get on that plane and, you know, be a part of the Olympics. Um, in 2012, when it was in the United Kingdom, I went to watch one of the games at Cardiff and, and since that game, you know, it's been it's been a dream of mine to play at the Olympics. Um, but I am very realistic and, you know, I I know that there's a big pool of players that um that she has to choose from on her backroom staff and yeah, and all I can focus on is my myself and my performances for Reading and, and for Wales and, and just hope that, you know, I'm I'm in there somewhere. Where does playing in the Olympics has sit in your ambitions or, or your goals? Yeah, it is a goal of mine, and you know, I'd be I would be lying if I said it wasn't a goal. Um, I'd love to to compete at the Olympics, and like I said, you know, having experienced it myself from a fan's perspective, um, it's such a big occasion, and you know that all the sports come together, and you know, worldwide, it's, it's being watched, and to play. Um, with the group of players that that'll be going and you know to compete in the Olympics would be a dream um it's not something I'm focusing on you know it, it's in the near future but it's you know it is a goal of mine and, and hopefully one day it might be achieved now you could say has that Wales have uh, a few world-class players uh, in their camp so how disappointed would you be if no Welsh players made the team GB squad I think it's, it's a tough one. Um, England's success over the last few years is the reason why there is a Team GB to begin with. So do I expect it to the majority of the team to be English? Yes. But do I think that adding um, a few players from from Wales, from Scotland, you know, I'm a Northern Islander in there too, that, that would strengthen the squad? I do, I do believe so. Um, you know, the likes of Sophie Ingle, I'm maybe biased, but I think she should be going. You know, Kaz Weir has a chance, Kim Little. You know, there's so many players that, you know, it's going to be a tough decision for them to make regardless. 18-player squad is a small squad to take to an Olympics and um, it's going to be a tough job to to narrow that down. But I do think that um, the best 18 players should be on that plane going. Yeah, it is a tough job. I certainly do not envy Hegarisa having to make that decision. Um, now, in, in terms of Wales, we, we had your Welsh teammate on, uh, Jess Fishlock, not too long ago, and she spoke about the, the media attention and the difference in media attention between, you know, English players, Welsh players, and perhaps a, a bias towards the English players um, over other home nation players. Do you, do you feel that? Do you, do you feel as though, Eng- if you're English, you get more attention, you get more coverage, you get more commercial opportunities? I think you do. Um, I think it's it's a hard subject to touch on. I think playing in the WSL is an English league and predominantly, you know, it's English players that have been playing in this league since the start. Um, I do think that, you know, it is, it is growing and especially media within Wales is getting a lot better. And, you know, that's something that's going to help us as individuals um, achieve. And, you know, it's the little things like being on beat, BBC Sport Wales, um, you know, it was unheard of for us to, for our games to be televised playing for Wales. And, and you know, now, fortunately, they're televising every game. So it's little things like that that will help us 
um, achieve long term as well as short term. And, you know, as long as as everyone gets seen equally, then I think especially for the Olympics, that that would be great for everyone. Well, yes, Wales have made a lot of progress over the years. And I know recently you had an international camp has uh, and it was the first camp without Jane Ludlow in seven years. It must have been really odd. Yeah, it was very strange. Um, Jane is a very um, dedicated and, you know, loud character to have about. And, you know, her presence was was missed on the last camp. But, um, yeah, it's it's just very important now that the boards make the right decision on who they bring in next. And, you know, I have every faith that, that they will do that. And it's building on the work Jane has done in her time with Wales. You know, she's changed the game completely for women's football in Wales and you know it's just it's building on that um you know our defensive structure has been great for seven years and you know we've conceded very limited goals but final thirds creating chances um final balls and stuff that's something that we've taken responsibility for as players and something that we know that that we need to get better at and we need to work on and I think it's just important that whoever comes in next builds on that and you know hopefully takes us to the next stage by qualifying for a major tournament right well it's been a packed show already but uh, Hannah Wilkes is here to cram in a little bit more with the social wrap take a look International Women's Day on Monday saw plenty of posts across social media with clubs, players and fans raising a hand to support Choose to Challenge and committing to challenging gender inequality and bias where they see it, as well as choosing to seek out and celebrate the achievements of women, which is something we are all here for on the Women's Football Show. Watford chose to celebrate by highlighting their very first women's team, the Golden Girls, pictured here 40 years ago. And the Scottish national team celebrated their players, their fans, their coaches and referees who all make the game great. For several players, the day gave them a chance to reflect on just how far they and the women's game have come. With Lucy Bronze even writing a letter to her younger self reflecting on her journey, the support of her family and crucially how women's football and women more widely have still got a long way to go. It's very much worth taking 10 minutes to sit down and give it a proper read if you haven't already. On the pitch, Bristol City picked up a huge three points and lifted themselves off the bottom of the WSL table on Monday night. Their 3-2 victory over Reading featuring five goals, a red card and plenty of drama. Naturally, getting a huge response on Twitter too. And finally, Liv Cook has been at it again. Everyone's favourite freestyler went for her fifth world record attempt last Sunday and naturally she smashed it. Inspired by Floyd Mayweather, Liv went for the most keepy-uppies in 30 seconds whilst skipping. Yep, and she managed a very impressive 62, just in time for International Women's Day as well. Brilliant. Thanks to Hannah Wilkes for that. Sorry, Haz, there was a bit of Bristol in there, but um, we'll move on. We'll move on. We'll move yeah, on. let's move uh, let's on quick. Champions League. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, we'll talk Champions League now, uh, which, Sue, is progressing very nicely for mm. the WSL teams, Manchester City and Chelsea. Some uh, brilliant results for them. 
Yeah, really good. I think, you know, the, the Chelsea game was another eventful one, two penalties. One was missed by Atletico Madrid. It was actually our, our very own Tony Duggan. Um, but Maren Mielda scored a penalty for Chelsea. So cool. Um, Emma Hayes did say that her side looked a little bit leggy. Um, I suppose they've had quite a lot of games in, in such a, a short space of time. They do have a, a strong squad, though, which, you know, they, they can rotate. And Manchester City, absolutely convincing win. And, and in the away leg, they were able to, to rotate some of their players. You know, Steph Horton didn't play. Lucy Bronze didn't play. The goalkeeper, Robert, was was on the bench. So they were able to, to change it up a little bit. But it's fantastic that, that both teams have progressed through. Yes, uh, so those results for Chelsea and City mean they are safely through uh, to the quarterfinal stage. And actually, the draw uh, has been made for all the remaining stages of the competition right through to the final in Gothenburg in May. Now, there wasn't any seeding or country protection in this draw, so there was always a possibility that the WSL teams could clash. Yeah, there, there was always a risk, but it's it's great that we still have the chance to see both of them and hopefully they'll make it through to the semis and, and the possibility of an all WSL final. How exciting is that? But there's not going to be any easy matches at this point. And as you can see, just looking down the draw, it's going to be tough. And, and these quarterfinals are hard enough, so we can't really look too far ahead. So we will find out who will be in the semi-finals by the 1st of April. And of course, we will keep you right up to date here on the Women's Football Show. Uh, now, Haz is uh, still alongside myself and Sue Smith. And Haz, looking towards the weekend now for your next match against Spurs, feeling confident you can get back to winning ways? Yeah, I think it's just important that we get back onto the field as soon as possible and hopefully um, put in a better performance than what we did against Bristol. And, you know, it's going to be a tough game again on Sunday against Tottenham, but it's one that as a group we're, we're looking forward to. Brilliant. We're looking forward to it too. And thank you so much for making your debut on the Women's Football Show. And I should say, I've been calling you Has because that's what you told me to say and that's what everyone <laughs> refers to you as, right? <laughs> that's right, yeah. <laughs> uh, Sue Smith, always a pleasure to have you with us on the Women's Football Show. Thank you. Thanks, Jess. Right, just time to tell you about some live sports coming your way on Sky Sports. It's a netball doubleheader on Monday. London Pulse against Celtic Dragons at quarter past five on Sky Sports Arena and Sky Sports Mix. That's followed by Leeds Rhinos versus Sirens at quarter past seven, also on Sky Sports Arena and Mix. And of course, next Friday, we return the Women's Football Show and Sky Sports Football at six o'clock. We look forward to seeing you then. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Look after yourselves during lockdown. And if you're celebrating, have a lovely Mother's Day. See you next week. Sky Sports. Feel it all. Wouldn't it be great if there were a pocket-sized guide that could help you sleep, focus, act, or be better? Well, there is. And if you have 10 minutes, Headspace can change your life. I know because it's definitely helped me too. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. Headspace is the only meditation app advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. So whatever the situation, Headspace can really help you feel better. If you're overwhelmed, Headspace has three minute SOS meditations for you. 
Need some help falling asleep? They can help you with wind down sessions their members swear by. And for parents, Headspace even has stuff that you could do with your kids too. And their approach to mindfulness can help you reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Like I said, I use Headspace as well. I used to use it back in the day, then I got off of it for a while to use another tool. But then honestly, I came back to it and it's even better. The voicing, the meditation, it definitely, even just with five minutes a day, it really changes everything for me. It's backed by 25 published studies on its benefits, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. Incredible. So you deserve to feel happier and Headspace is meditation made simple. So go to headspace.com slash SPI. That's headspace.com slash SPI for a free one month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash SPI today. If you're using anything other than Indeed for your hiring, you're wasting your time. Hire great people faster with Indeed. Only pay for results and get back time in your schedule. I've actually used Indeed.com before on the hiring end. Actually, not for myself, but for a niche site where I was helping security guards get hooked up with employers. And it works. It works really, really well. And to do it from a person's point of view of hiring qualified candidates, it completely works. They have something now called Instant Match. They search through the millions of resumes in their database to help you and show you the great candidates that you want kind of instantly, which is pretty insane. So you can do this part really, really fast, meeting and hiring great people, right? That's what you wanna do. You wanna meet them and hire them. Unlike other hiring sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility, delivering a quality shortlist faster. With Indeed, there are no long-term contracts, so you can pause your account literally at any time, and so you only pay for what you need. With Instant Match, you see a list of great candidates with zero weight, and Indeed delivers four times more hires than other job sites combined, according to Talent Nest. You want your quality shortlist fast? You need Indeed. Right now, our listeners get a free $75 credit to upgrade your job post at indeed.com slash SPI. This is Indeed's best offer available anywhere. Get a free $75 credit at indeed.com slash SPI, indeed.com slash SPI, offer valid through March 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Smart Passive Income Podcast, where it's all about working hard now so you can sit back and reap the benefits later. And now your host, he's got clubbed thumbs, but he likes to call them his Nintendo thumbs, Pat Flynn. Whether you're an entrepreneur or not yet, in your head, I want to know if you've actually taken the leap yet. The leap, the entrepreneurial leap. Yeah, you could even be an entrepreneur and not yet take that leap. And I'm going to tell you a story here in this short follow-up Friday episode about the time I took the leap, and it didn't happen when I got laid off. More on that in a sec, but welcome to the second follow-up Friday episode here on Smart Passive Income. This is a special episode that is now something experimental that we're doing. Yes, we're coming out with two episodes per week. The Friday episode, a follow-up to the Wednesday episode, where we go in depth with a topic, and today we are going in depth with the idea of the entrepreneurial leap. Because our guest earlier this week, if you haven't listened to episode 465, I highly recommend you do that. That was with author Gino Wickman, the author of a couple of books, in fact. One of the most life-changing books for my business was one of his called Rocket Fuel. This idea of the relationship between a visionary in a business, it could be you, the creator, the person who has the ideas, and the 
integrator, the person in your business who works with you, alongside you, or below you, if you will, sort of as you do what you do on the front end, they're helping you from the back end, and they're the executor, they're the online business manager, again, the integrator. And this visionary integrator relationship is what Rocket Fuel is all about, and it's what led me to feel very great about working with and even bringing Matt, my co-CEO now in SPI, alongside me to help execute on a lot of the uh, big vision ideas that I have within SPI Media and, and within the brand. So can't thank Gino enough. I talked about that in the episode and we interviewed him not just about rocket fuel, but we talked about this idea of the entrepreneurial leap and the different things that you might need in order to take that leap, the things that you can do to ensure that you're gonna be feeling okay when you do that and how to get support and, and all those kinds of things. And what we do here on these follow-up Friday episodes is just me and you, I go deep. And we talk about something that was discussed in that episode a little bit more deeply, and I wanted to tell you the story today about when I took the entrepreneurial leap. Now, you might know that I had gotten laid off in June of 2008. That was not a leap. That was essentially you know, getting shoved off, <laughs> if you will, and hitting the ground really hard and not really knowing where to go next, right? And all I was trying to do when I hit the ground was to keep climbing back up that same ladder, the same ladder I was familiar with, right? Because in my head, I was so high up that ladder, right? And the higher up a ladder you go, the tighter you grip. And you can't imagine letting go or trying something else because you've dedicated your life to this or at least your career or even your schooling. And that was a hard thing that was there for me. I had five or four and a half, if you will, years of schooling to be an architect. I got this amazing job in the Bay Area of California at a very renowned architecture firm working on some amazing buildings and designs and everything from casinos, restaurants, retail stores, et cetera. I mean, I had my fingerprint on so many buildings across the United States and that was my career and that's what I thought I was gonna do forever until I got let go. But when I get let go, a lot of things happened. I fell into a little bit of a, of a depression state, didn't know what I was gonna do next was begging and pleading to go back into the architecture space, climbing up that ladder again that I had once climbed before. Couldn't imagine life anywhere else. And then I got presented with an opportunity. I had heard a podcast called Internet Business Mastery. And on that show, big thank you and shout out to Jeremy and Jason, the hosts of that show. Very much a reason why I have a podcast today was because of them. They changed my life. And I wanted to pay it forward and start a podcast to do the same for others. But on their show, I heard an interview with a man named Cornelius Fitchner, who I heard was helping people pass the project management exam, and he was making six figures a year doing so. And it just blew me away. That's what inspired me to go and create my architecture website to help people pass the architectural exam called the LEAD exam, which stands for Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design. And that turned into the business that ended up making over $200,000 after monetizing that at the end of 2008, and it completely changed my life. It showed me that I could do it. It showed me that there were other opportunities out there to start a business, to do something of my own, to take control, to have more freedom with time, and to have eventually, not right away, but eventually some financial security, and it was, it was amazing. But you might not know this. In March of 2009, this was several months after starting this business, and the business was running, and I was making twenty to $25,000 a month which was like four times, five times as much as I was making monthly as an architect, yet I was still going in for job interviews. I was still daily trying to make my resume look better. I was still daily calling around, seeing if anybody had any open positions. And I remember vividly 
going to different architecture firms in the San Diego area. I was living with my parents at the time. I had moved out of my apartment to save money because I had gotten let go. And I had to pay for this wedding and all this. There's a lot of things. There's, it was multi-levels of bad timing, right? But I remember vivid memories of going into architecture firms, sitting down and hoping that I would get every question on their AutoCAD test correct because I just couldn't imagine doing anything else. I had been so conditioned to believe I was supposed to be an architect from the years of schooling to how much I was excelling in the architecture career that I had. And even though on the side, I had this business that was booming, I still went in for job interviews. And it was interesting because every time I got told that, well, you know, they weren't gonna hire me, I felt like, well, this isn't good enough. I need to try again. That I maybe had lost my touch. At the same time, I had my dad, who is very supportive and has always been. He was telling me something that was his version of support, which was, hey, you can go back to school. You can go get your master's degree. You could come out better on the other end and get an even better job. And this thing that you're doing on the side, I mean, it's, it's risky, was something that he said. I remember, I remember sharing this story online when people started to catch a wind of, of my story. And I was featured on a podcast called Entrepreneur's Journey with Yaro Starak. And I remember getting a lot of great comments on that podcast episode of his. But then there was one comment that said, this guy is just a flash in the pan. He's gonna go back to architecture in no time. And I read that and I was like, yeah, he's probably right. So even though I was doing business, I was not yet somebody who had taken the leap. I was still straddling two positions, two sides. It was as if I was on a new ladder, climbing the new ladder, but still with one foot on the old ladder. How in the world can you climb a new ladder if you still have a foot on the old one that you're trying to leave behind? But I didn't wanna leave it behind because that's all I knew. But then I started to get some advice. I started to reach out to people and mentors who could help me grow my business more. And I started to notice more and more the freedom of time and the ability for these people who were my mentors to connect with other people, to inspire other people, and not do it at a nine to five job, but do it as an entrepreneur. And there was one person in particular, actually it was Jeremy from Internet Business Mastery, such a important figure in my life who had helped me get to where I'm at today. We sat down at a cheesecake factory in San Diego. We had lunch together and I was telling him about my business and how it was going because he was there kind of at the start. I joined his academy and all this stuff and he was asking how it was going. And I said, you know, business is going well, but I'm still looking for jobs. And he said, you know what? If you get another architectural position, you might be happy. I hope that if that's in fact your life goal and your dream, that that's what you do and I hope you get the next job. But if you go down that route, your business will not grow. It just won't. And I knew that to be true, but when I heard it from somebody else, it made complete sense. And then he said something that really resonated with me. It was actually a question. He said, Pat, how many thank yous have you gotten lately from your business and the things that you're doing with helping people pass this exam? And I told him, yeah, I'm getting emails every single day. People passing their exams, people saying, you know, thank you, people calling me by name, which was different to me. I was just this guy on the internet blogging about passing this exam. There was even a woman named Jackie who I spoke about in my book, Superfans, who actually said, I'm your biggest fan. All I did was help her pass this exam. But Jeremy then followed up with, well, how often did you get thanked and recognized when you were doing architecture? 
And you know what? I couldn't come up with an example. There were none. And you know, there were probably times when my project manager would say thanks for the blueprints or the the CAD drawings or, you know, whatever. But there were no moments where I knew that I was actually helping somebody really or changing a person's life in the way that it seemed like I was doing it through helping people pass this exam because people were getting raises and getting promotions. And Jackie specifically had mentioned that she was able to take her family to Disneyland as a result of her promotion. And, you know, later, this is not something I knew at the time, but later, and I spoke about this in Superfans, she had actually told her entire office to buy my guide. All 25 people in the office had been a customer as a result of this one person who I had helped. And like I said earlier, I have my fingerprints on so many different buildings in the United States, including Hawaii, in fact. Now, my wife and I, we were married on February 21st, 2009, and we went to Hawaii on our honeymoon. And I remember we were walking down one of the main streets. This was in Oahu in Waikiki. And there's a lot of beautiful buildings. And of course, as an architect, somebody who's just still engulfed in that world at the time, I was looking around. I love looking at buildings. And we're walking down one of the streets and I just have to stop because as we're walking down the street, I notice a restaurant, a P.F. Chang's that I recognized. And again, this is my first time in Hawaii but I recognized it because it was one that I had designed myself. The exterior, I remember specifically being in Photoshop. I remember the exact pattern of the chair material, the specific pendants that were used, and exactly where they were on top of each of the booths inside and outside. The specific color, the specific material of the exterior, all of it. I just recognized it because when you're that deep into a project, you get very close to it. And so I just stopped there and I look inside and I look around. Inside there is so much noise, I'm sure, with the restaurant serving their patrons, people sitting and having conversations at their booths, the people behind the bar pouring drinks, the manager in the back calculating receipts, people dining outside right near where I'm stopped. And then people walking up and down the street, not paying any attention to the store at all. And it made me realize in that moment that nobody there would ever know that I had anything to do with that building. Nobody. And that was a moment where I realized that online, as an entrepreneur, helping a few people pass an exam that most people have never heard of before, they're becoming fans of me. They're supporting me and sharing my book and my study guide with other people. They're recognizing me for the work that I'm doing. And that was a big moment for me because that that was a moment while in this amazing state of euphoria with my new wife and my family that we were starting. It was just incredible to have kind of all that happen at the same time. It was sort of fate that I walked down that particular street. And it was interesting because we were walking a very long way. It wasn't near our hotel. We just were taking a stroll and loved the scenery. A couple months later, back in San Diego, business is rolling. It's growing even more. I also have this new website called Smart Passive Income where I'm teaching a lot of this stuff to other people and just being very open and transparent about what I'm doing and what I'm earning and what I'm spending and what's working and what's not. And I get a phone call. And I get a phone call from the boss who had let me go. His name was Imad. And Imad calls me and he goes, Pat, I hope you're doing well. I hope everything's okay. How are you? And it was nice to get a call from him to check up on me and to see how things were going. But he had other intentions as well. 
He was calling because he wanted me to come back and work for him. He had ended up leaving the position he was in and he started his own firm. He was able to take a couple of my coworkers, some of my best friends when I was at work, people who I could peek over the stanchion, you know, the cubicle, and have a conversation about last week's game kind of people, right? They were working for him. He even promised me my own office. I never had an office before. He even promised me that if I were to come up to Irvine, California, that he would pay for me and my wife for one year for rent. He really wanted me to come work for him. And interestingly enough, and almost as a surprise to me, it didn't take me more than a few seconds to say, you know, Iman, thank you so much, but no thanks. I'm good. I appreciate the offer. And, you know, I didn't hang up on him at that moment, but I think he was taken aback and he started asking questions about what I was doing. And, you know, he was, he was very nice about it. He was very proud that I had been able to stay afloat. And I think that he really did care about what I was doing. I think he was a little disappointed or at least surprised. But that was the moment that I took the entrepreneurial leap. And when I took the entrepreneurial leap, that was the moment I let that last leg go from that other ladder, the corporate ladder. And I was fully on this entrepreneurial ladder now. And the beauty of the entrepreneurial ladder is that it goes up and up and up. And there is no ceiling. There is no limit. And I'm very grateful that I got laid off. So for me, it was a moment. For many others, I know there are moments as well. For others, you might have breezed by that moment. And you look back and you go, wow, look at where I am now. Or look at what I'm attempting to do now. And that's so great. And for all of us, you listening while on a run or at the gym or in your car or while doing chores or just hanging out in the living room. Maybe you have other family members listening to this at the same time. I'm just here to tell you that it does require some sort of letting go in order to move higher and grow into a new space. As we discussed this past week with Gino, there are safeguards that you can put into place and support systems. And essentially, often, the worst case scenario that we think might happen is not even a part of the scenario. It's just our brain trying to make up these stories. But you have advocates in your life who could support you. Perhaps you might want to save up a little bit. Or perhaps you actually know deep down that if you did make the leap, that you could grow even faster and get to where you want to go even quicker. And it's not about working hard. It's about working smart. Thank you for listening to this follow-up Friday episode of Smart Passive Income. I hope you enjoy them. And if you do, if you're listening to this and you've gotten all the way to the end here, let me know how this story has impacted you. Find me on Instagram, send me a quick DM, or on Twitter, same thing, or just message me at Pat Flynn, and I look forward to hearing what you think. Let me know what you think about these Friday follow-ups. I think I'm liking it because we're gonna go deep here. Thank you, and again, if you haven't listened to the last episode with Gino Wickman, episode 465, do it. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. And as always, Team Flynn for the win. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to the Smart Passive Income Podcast at www.smartpassiveincome.com.
So we're trying something new with the SPI podcast that we've been working on for a while now, and I'm so excited to tell you about it. We partnered with our friends at Supercast and just launched a new podcast experience called the SPI Podcast Premium Pass, and now you can sign up for it today. The SPI Podcast Premium Pass is a paid subscription that gives you all the content you know and trust and also gives you perks that we've never offered before. You'll get access to all SPI Podcast episodes a day before they're published anywhere else, and you're also gonna get them completely ad-free. And soon we're gonna start publishing new weekly content that will only be available to subscribers, all for only $5 a month. It only takes a few minutes to set up the SPI Podcast Premium Pass and start listening with your favorite podcast player. Membership is super flexible with no commitment required, so you're in full control of your subscription at all times, and it's a subscription that you can feel good about. By subscribing to the Premium Pass, you'll be supporting the SPI team, which allows us to continue to produce valuable content, including new podcasts for you. We're so excited to be offering the subscription and we hope that you'll join us. Sign up for the SPA Podcast Premium Pass today at smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Again, that's smartpassiveincome.com slash premium. Hope to see you on the Premium Pass. doesn't have to stop here if you have any questions suggestions or feedback head over right now to twitter and facebook and like share and get involved join us next time please be advised that this podcast is meant for educational and informational purposes only and is in no way a replacement for legal or medical advice the opinions contained within are solely those of the interviewers and interviewees and should be received as so Those seeking help or advice are encouraged to obtain professional legal and medical services.